Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to one and all. Um, I am glad to be home. What I like most about being home, of course we love seeing the family and seeing all y'all, but what I like most about being home is I'm around people that talk like me. <laughs> I may be a little worse than most of y'all because I'm from the eastern part of South Carolina, from Florence County, but I spent a lot of years here in the upstate, and uh, I get accused of being from Texas in Utah a lot, and I'm not from Texas. I've only been to Texas a few times. But it's good to be around y'all folks that talk like me, at least for a few more days. We'll be headed back on Thursday. Uh, but my wife and I, Robin, and my two daughters, Sarah and Lily, and I have developed a deep, deep love for the people of Utah. In three and a half years that we've been there, we've, we've come to love them greatly. Great people. Great people in Utah. You wouldn't believe it. Um, Utah's a, a very beautiful place and a great place to live. If you like huge mountains, dry deserts, very little water, and very few trees. A little different than it is here. Let's just say, Utah is a great place to film western movies. And many have been filmed there. Some of you folks who are a little older than I am uh, may remember 1948 Fort Apache with John Wayne and Henry Fonda and Shirley Temple. That was filmed there. Uh, 1950 Rio Grande. John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara. 1966, El Dorado. John Wayne and Robert Mitchum. All those were filmed there. But did you know that Elvis Presley and Barbara Eden filmed a Western in Utah? It's called Flaming Star. Filmed in 1960. And I guess it went up like a flaming star. And not many people remember that. But <laughs> Utah is well known for its Westerns and it's well known for its religion. You're from Utah? You must be, yeah, I hear it all the time. Of course, I heard that when I was here, too, because I had so many children. <laughs> no, not Catholic either. <laughs> well, it's well known for its religion. As a matter of fact, Utah is considered to be the second most religious state in the United States. Second only to Mississippi. In Mississippi, the majority... Uh, affiliate themselves with a Christian church. You know, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, those types of things. This is probably no surprise to you, but over two-thirds of Mississippi's religious population consider themselves to be Baptists. That is pretty much a Baptist state. Uh, Utah is a little different, religiously speaking. According to statistics, two-thirds of the state's population claims to be Christian. But only 7% of those or what would be called evangelical Protestants. Those are the ones who believe in the authority of the Bible and what it teaches about salvation by grace through faith alone. The vast majority of the religious people in Utah are burdened down by religion of works. It's very sad. One that stringently controls their earthly life and uses the control of their eternal destiny as leverage. How would you like it if, your, if the leaders of this church came to your home to collect your tithes when you got behind? How would you like it if your church leaders told you that if you mess up in life, your church membership, along with your salvation, will be taken away from you? How would you like it if you were told that if you leave the church, you will not be able to see your loved ones in heaven ever again? How would you like it if the leaders of this of this church told you that your eight-year-old child was not worthy enough 
to be baptized. All those are real examples I've heard from people we've ministered to. Utah ranks second in religion, and it ranks second in something else as well. It ranks second in the number of suicides committed each year, especially among high school and college-age kids. In the four, three and a half short years we've lived in Richfield, Utah, at least a half a dozen of my two daughters' high school friends have taken their own life. It's a small school. Needless to say, the state of Utah is a mission field for true Christianity. And in, a, in the few years that my family and I have served there, we have seen God do some miraculous things. We haven't seen mass conversions yet, but we have seen several life transformations. We're grateful that God has called us to serve in Utah, and as far as we know, we will spend the rest of our lives there sharing the love of God and the true gospel of hope with the people there. We would appreciate your prayers as we continue to do so and invite one and all to come visit from time to time. Your presence would be a huge encouragement to those who are serving alongside of us on a daily basis. When you're a small church in the middle of a place that's controlled by a predominant religion, it's, almost, it's very easy to say we're all by ourselves. So just your presence would be an encouragement, let alone what you could do to help in the ministry. In keeping with the Western theme, I'd like to speak with you this morning about the good, the bad, and the ugly of Christmas. So if you would turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. As we'll see in this passage, Jesus is as tough and just as ornery as any cowboy has ever been, including John Wayne. He is well versed in shooting from the hip. He is a straight shooter, and he has no problem telling it like it is. In Matthew 23, we find Jesus in the Jerusalem temple. That's where everybody who was anybody in the Jew Jewish culture congregated down at the temple. In reading this chapter, uh, you will see that in Jesus' mind there were two types of people there that day. And in speaking, He addressed them both. Those two types of people were the saved, those who were His disciples, and the lost, those who hadn't believed on Him as their Messiah. As a matter of fact, that's the way Jesus always sees people. Saved or lost. Not rich or poor. Not Jew or Samaritan, not male or female, not Baptist or Presbyterian, but saved or lost. So let's read just a little bit of this. I, I, I actually attempted to read the whole chapter in the first service. That was quite long. Uh, so we're just going to go down to, from 1 to 13. <laughs> uh, then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to His disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts. They best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. 
but you. Do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So what does this have to do with Christmas? Everything. Because Christmas is where the New Testament begins and the Old Testament ends. Christmas is where the law of the Old Testament was fulfilled and where salvation by grace through faith begins. Christmas is where God began to make a way for man. Vance Havner, the preacher from long ago, said, Christmas is based on an exchange of gifts. The gift of God to man, His unspeakable gift of His Son, and the gift of man to God when we present our bodies a living sacrifice. That's it. Christmas is based on an exchange of gifts. God gave, we receive. We give, God receives. So let's see how this exchange of gifts plays out as we examine the good, the bad, and the ugly of Christmas. First, the good of Christmas. What is the good of Christmas? Some might say it's the food in the family. Some might say it's the gifts. Some might say the decorations, and some might say the parties. But the Bible says that the good of Christmas is that hope has come. The prophet Isaiah knew it was going to happen. He said it in Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Then an angel announced it taking place in Luke 2, 10 and 11. The angel said to the shepherds, Do not be afraid, for behold... I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Hope has come, and it is for all people. Do you know someone who is living without hope? They're desperate. They're miserable. Their life has no meaning. Things were going good for a while, but what seemed good was merely fleeting. Oh, they've been down before, but they have always managed to pull themselves back up and hopefully will be able to do it again. Life without hope is a terrible way to live. Rick Warren, the author of a a very popular book called The Purpose Driven Life, said this, You were made by God and for God. And until you understand that, life will never make sense. It won't. I know that personally. Several years ago, I was a young man living without hope. I was 28 years old, and I had experienced many Christmases, but I had not yet experienced the hope that the first Christmas brings. In my mind, I had been doing all the things I was supposed to be doing, along with many things I shouldn't be, of course. I was a hard worker. I worked hard to provide for my family. That's what a man's supposed to do, right? Yes, of course. But believe it or not, Life is so much more than material things. Life is so much more than a successful career. 
Life is so much more than just a comfortable home and a nice car or two or three. Life is about our relationship with Almighty God. I didn't know that. That's why I was putting my hope in other things, things of this world, instead of the things of God. That's why I had no hope. Because genuine hope comes from God. And it came that very first Christmas in the form of a little babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And it came to me on January 31st, 1992 in the living room of my family's home over on River Road. Hope has come and it is for all people. God loved us so much that He gave us a gift. The gift of hope in the form of a little baby named Jesus. Hope has come. Has it come for you? Have you accepted that gift? You know about it now. Alright. That's the good of Christmas. Hope has come. Then, there's the bad of Christmas. Some might say it's the credit card bills that's going to be piling in any day now. Some might say it's the time spent with their in-laws. Some might say it's the drudgery of shopping and fighting traffic. But the Bible says it's the fact that most people will reject the free gift of salvation. The bad of Christmas is that since God came to earth in the form of a precious babe in the manger, lived a sinless life and died a sacrificial death, was buried and rose again in order to make atonement for our sins, in order to redeem us from the penalty of our sins, a choice has to be made. And not all will make the right one. The Bible speaks of two paths that can be taken in life. The writer of Proverbs understood this. He says in Proverbs 20, 12, 28, in the way of righteousness is life. And in its pathway there is no death. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. A choice has to be made. Which path will you go down? Oh, it would be easy to be a religious spectator, to watch the people on the right path and try to imitate them. Many do that. You know, they'll say things like, I am just as much a Christian as anyone else. I go to church. My grandpa was a Christian and therefore I am a Christian too. Did you know the saddest words ever spoken are found within the pages of our Bible? And they came from the very lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. you there in Matthew 23. Let's go over um, to... Matthew 7, real quickly. As a matter of fact, these, 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 verse, these two verses I'm about to read are what motivate me to ministry. There's a lot of other things I could be doing. But because I know this truth, I have no choice. I have to minister to others. I have to reach out to others. And I hope it leads you to the same kind of conviction. It breaks my heart every time I read these verses. And it reminds me of the urgency of evangelism. So let's look at Matthew 7, verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Those are some religious folks. And then I will declare to them, 
I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness. Well, that word lawlessness, uh, those are the people who aren't living right. They're breaking all the laws. Surely that's what that means. Those are the people who are rebellious against the things of God. Those are the people who don't come to church at all. No, those are the people who present themselves as Christians, but are really not. Those are the people who, when asked by God, why shall I let you into my heaven? Will answer, because I think I've been good enough. Utah's full of those folks. I dare say South Carolina is too. I think I've been good enough. I'm a Baptist. I have perfect Sunday school attendance. I donated a pew for the new sanctuary and I sit in it every Sunday. Those are the people who are depending on their good works to get them into heaven. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. The choice that has to be made is not can I be good enough. Because we can't. The choice that has to be made is will I surrender my entire life over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's what should happen when we receive the gift of God's Son. You exchange gifts. You give your life in return. He gave us His everything. He expects no less from us. Here's a self-test that will let you know if you're truly living for the Lord. When you get home today, get out your checkbook and your calendar. Watch out, he's gone from preaching to meddling. Then ask yourself, do these two things reflect Jesus' total lordship over my life? They should. Our checkbooks ought to reflect a constant flow of currency towards Christian ministry. God provides the increase and we seek His wisdom and direction on how to spend it to benefit His kingdom work. There's no greater purpose. Our calendars ought to reflect a lifestyle of service for the Lord. But here, not because we got to, but because we get to. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved unto good works, to do good works. In other words, our lives should be totally and completely consumed with the things of God. Not just a little here and there, but totally and completely consumed. Once we come to understand that, we'll be ready for the ugly of Christmas. The ugly of Christmas. Some might say it's the sweaters. Some might say it's the relatives we have to fake kindness toward. Some might say it's the way you look on Christmas morning after staying up all night assembling bicycles. But the Bible says that the ugly of Christmas is that serving the Lord will cost us. Since Christmas has come, since Emmanuel, God with us, has taken place, since the prophecies have been fulfilled, all Christians now have a responsibility. It's called the Great Commission. It was the last instruction Jesus gave His disciples, His Christians, before ascending back to heaven. So you're there in Matthew 7. Let's go over to Matthew 28 and take a look at those two verses quickly. I'm sure you're all familiar with them. But Matthew 28, verse 19. It says, Go therefore 
and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Well, that's why we have the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board. We send them our money, and they fill the Great Commission for us. They fulfill it for us. No, the Great Commission is for all Christians. As a matter of fact, when these instructions were first given, there was no IMB or NAMB. There was not even a church organized yet. The Great Commission was given to individual Christians. Don't get me wrong, to organize and pull our resources is a very wise thing to do. But it should never excuse us from our personal responsibilities as Christians. Here's an eye-opening comparison I want to share with you this morning. The Southern Baptist Convention currently has a membership of about 15.5 million people in about 50,000 churches worldwide. These churches together support 4,800 full-time missionaries overseas and 5,600 full-time and part-time missionaries in North America. Now listen to this. The Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, currently has a membership of about 15 million people with 85,000 full-time missionaries worldwide. That ought to bring us some concern. If we are depending on our missionaries to do all the evangelism and the discipleship, we are coming up far short of what is expected of us. The Great Commission is for all Christians. As a matter of fact, if you're not living out the Great Commission, you're not fulfilling your purpose as a Christian. Living out the Great Commission is ugly. It consists of actively getting your hands dirty, of getting involved in other people's lives. Most times, they're messed up lives. It only makes sense. They haven't been living for the Lord. The smell of the world is all over them. But now someone has shared the gospel with them, and they have received it as truth and have given their life to Him. So they need to be discipled. They need to be taught the ways of God. Well, that's why we have pastors and Sunday school teachers. They fulfill the Great Commission for us. No, the Great Commission is for all Christians. So let me ask you, how many lost people have you shared the gospel with this year? How many new Christians are you discipling right now? You've been a Christian for many years. Are you passing that experience, that knowledge, that wisdom on to others? Or will you take it to the grave with you? Maybe, maybe here's where we get messed up and get off track. Well, I've concentrated all my discipling toward my children. That investment in the next generation should indeed be a priority. But what kind of effect are you having on this generation? Are you setting the example for your children of the importance of sharing the gospel and discipling others? Of actively fulfilling the Great Commission? As a pastor, one of the saddest things I've heard from a church attender so far is this. My wife and I have decided that we need to cut back on our ministry participation 
so that we could spend more time with our family. Well, that sounds like a noble cause. But wouldn't the better solution be to get your entire family involved in the ministry? What better way to disciple your family than to have them serve the Lord alongside of you? Folks, Christianity is not something we do. Christianity is who we are. It should infiltrate every area of our lives. If you're saved, if you have accepted the free gift of salvation, then your life now belongs to Christ. Christ is not impressed with your religiosity. He could care less how many Bibles you have if you never read them. He could care less how many prayers you say if you never spend time listening to His response. He could care less how many times you come to church if you never put into practice that which you have learned. You might say, well, I would witness more if I knew how. I've heard people say that. I would minister to others if I were seminary trained like my pastor is. I just don't know how. Well, here you go. In less than three minutes, you can be trained to minister to others in a way just like Christ does. And that's how we want to be, is to be like Christ. Someone once said, and you may have seen this recently on Facebook, uh, and if it's on Facebook, we know it's true. We, we aren't called to be like other Christians. We're called to be like Christ. That's pretty profound. So let's turn back to Matthew 23 and go to the end of that chapter. Matthew 23 Verse 37. Once again, this is Jesus speaking. And He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to the desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more, till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The children are the nation of Israel. The Jewish people, the religious people, Jesus' people. Those who thought they had it all figured out, but didn't. Over in Matthew 9.36, Jesus looks over the crowd. He, it says, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Did you know that within that multitude were most likely a bunch of self-righteous, hypocritical, phylactery-wearing, whitewashed tomb vipers? But Jesus didn't give up on them. The very next verse after that says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the, to His harvest. Did you know that you're the answer to that prayer for this generation? If you're saved, you're the answer to that prayer. You are the laborers. No exclusions. The Great Commission is for all Christians. So let's read chapter 23, 37 again, and let's see if we can learn something about Jesus' ministry techniques that we can do ourselves 
It says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children, the nation of Israel, together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Did you catch it? Jesus is a hugger. He longed to hug his, the, the children of Israel, His people. He longed to gather them up under His wings and provide security and provide encouragement. Hugs are great. Hugs are great. I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, the Lord radically saved me. I, I came to a place of hopelessness. I realized I had no hope. There was no way out of my problems. I had gone so far down the wrong way that there was just no hope at all. And I finally hit the bottom, and they'll tell you this, and I believe it to be true. You can see God a lot better when you're lying flat on your back. I just wouldn't wish that on anybody. But I looked up to God, and I cried out, and I said, God, save me. I desperately need you to save me. I didn't understand Christianity. I didn't understand what to wear to church and how to act and where to sit and all those kind of things. All I knew is I had no hope. And somebody told me that he did. So I asked him to save me. And he radically saved me and delivered me from the desire of drugs and alcohol that I had, I had used from the time I was a 10-year-old boy. All I knew in life. And he radically changed my life. I've been a Christian now for 24 years. But that first day, that was a Saturday afternoon when I cried out to God. I knew I was saved. I, he filled me with peace. I, like I, never, I had never known peace before. Peace is knowing that everything's going to be okay. And I knew that without a, beyond a shadow of a doubt. So I got up the next morning, that Sunday morning, I went down to that church, which happened to be Siloam up the road, to where those folks came that came to witness to me. And when the preacher preached his sermon, I, couldn't, I had no idea what he talked about. But when he called an altar call down front, I went down front. And I says, I got saved yesterday. And he was excited. And so after the altar call was over, he introduced me to the people in sanctuary about this size, but it was full of folks. And many of you I see here today were there that day. He had me stand out front. He introduced me to the crowd. And, and at least five or 600 people came by and hugged my neck and told me they loved me and told me that they had been praying for me. And I was amazed. I knew that I was loved. I knew that I was encouraged by those hugs. I'll never forget those hugs. They were so warm and inviting. I was encouraged by those hugs. I knew I had made the right decision and I knew I was loved. Just through hugs. So you know if Jesus is a hugger and the Bible says He is, then we His children, His followers, His disciples, the ones who are called by His name, ought to be huggers as well. As a matter of fact, we ought to be the best huggers around. There are two participants involved in a hug. It's a pretty neat thing if you've never experienced one. There's a giver and a receiver. And the neat thing about it is they're interchangeable. That reverses. That role can reverse from time to time. Uh, as Christians, we are, when we're given a hug, we are expressing the very love of Jesus through our embrace. Jesus' love says, I know you've messed up. But I love you anyway. Jesus' love says, says, I know you're not perfect, but I love you anyway. 
Jesus' love says, everything's going to be okay. I'll walk through this with you. To be a receiver of that kind of hug is like surrendering anew to Jesus as one who has, has, has strayed but coming back home. Think of it as embracing a loved one after a long absence. Think of it as a father's embrace of the prodigal son. Receiving the hug of Jesus' love is a drawing near to the Lord in any area in which we have grown distant towards Him. The need is there. We all need a hug from Jesus from time to time. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God's children could always see their need for a hug? James 4.8 says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Doesn't that sound just like a hug? Here's the problem. We're not always willing to receive Jesus' hugs. It takes willingness on our part. There has to be a desire within us. There has to be a hunger in our hearts. Something within us that says, I think I need a hug. We have to listen to that little voice inside of us that says, I need to get closer to Jesus by receiving His hugs. Here's a poem I run across the other day that I think goes right along with it. I'll end with this. At the end of a lengthy and tiring day when I've faced the world in my private way, I need a hug. I need to draw closer to Jesus. When I'm hungry and cranky and feeling uptight, and a day has just passed when too little went right, I need a hug. I need to draw closer to Jesus. When my body is craving the warmth of another and my poor, aching muscles compete with each other, I need a hug. I need to draw closer to Jesus. When I'm insecure and a little bit nutty and my mind is exhausted, my body like putty, I need a hug. I need to draw closer to Jesus. When I'm affectionate, loving, and caring, and want to enjoy a real moment of sharing, I need a hug. I need to draw closer to Jesus. So the good of Christmas is that hope has come. The bad of Christmas, not everyone's going to choose Him. The ugly of Christmas is that serving the Lord will cost us. In just a moment, after I pray and everyone stands, some may want to come to the altar. You may have come to realize that your life choices or even your religiosity has kept you from accepting the free gift of salvation. You can lay that burden down today. Some of you may need to come back home like the prodigal son did. You have left your source of life and you need to come back home. Everyone else that's not doing business at the altar. As we stand, I would challenge you and invite you to minister to each other in the same way that Jesus does. Be a hugger. Within your very arms is the power of encouragement. You don't know what your neighbor's going through. But a hug will never hurt them. Be a, be a hugger. I challenge you to minister to others today and every day through your words of encouragement and through your hugs. And I challenge you to remember the Great Commission is for all Christians. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I thank You once again just for the opportunity we have to open up Your Word. Lord, I'm grateful that there's a standard. Lord, we don't want to be legalistic and all that kind of stuff. And, and we know that You're not impressed with our religiosity. But Lord, You do give us a standard to live by. You give us hope through Your Word. Lord, if it was up to us to make our own rules, we'd get way off track. Many do.
But Lord, you keep us safe. You keep us in your hand. And you've entrusted us with the gospel. The good news that Jesus saves. Lord, may we be found faithful in sharing that good news. And even going beyond that and training up those who would serve you in the next generation and in this, this generation. Lord, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, may today be the day of their salvation. Lord, they may have been even church members for many years, but they've come to realize that that's, it's just something they do. They don't have the relationship. Lord, today would you show them, would you convict them of their problem and show them the hope that has come for them. And then, Lord, there may be some that, that have given their life to you, but they've taken back control. They, they realized that Christianity cost. And they weren't willing to pay that cost, so they backed up. And now, they're just doing it their way. And they, since they're a Christian, they're under conviction, they realize that something's not right between them and you, and they're ready to come home. Lord, may this be the day they come home. Lord, whatever it is, Your will, for any of us and all of us today, may that be done in our lives. And then, Lord, help us to be an encouragement to one another as we leave this place. Many of us won't see each other again till next year. And some of us, maybe not even for a few years. But every time we do, would You remind us, Lord, to encourage one another, even through the hug that You've taught us how to use today. And I pray these things in your precious name. Amen.